Please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Our passage for this morning is Philippians 1, 3 to 11. Again, that's Philippians 1, 3 to 11. If you've been with us uh, during Sunday school, then you know that our focus for this quarter has been the development of Christian character. Uh, When you get down to it, this is really why we attend church on Sunday mornings. This is why we listen to sermons. It's why teaching is such a central component to our corporate gatherings as Christians, even including our worship services. It's as we saw last week in Philippians 1, 1 1-2, we are saints, meaning that we've been called out of the world, set apart in order to serve Christ. We are all, in the words of Paul in Philippians 1.1, douloi, servants, slaves, actually, to the Lord Jesus Christ. The only problem, of course, is that we don't do this by nature. The Scripture is very clear. We are, by nature, children of wrath, actually. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of our flesh, and carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Now, the good news is that even while we were in this condition, God has made us alive together with Christ. So we've since received the Spirit of Christ when we believed, and this Spirit has granted us a new set of desires. The trouble, though, is that this transformation which the Spirit performs is not immediate. We still struggle against indwelling sin, and so our progress in the faith, our conformity to our calling, is something that occurs very gradually. Again, we've talked about this in Sunday school. The very first lesson in our series, actually, was entitled, The Struggle of Spiritual Growth. And the idea in that lesson is that spiritual growth isn't something that just happens to us passively. It's also something that we participate in actively. And I want to be clear here, that's not to say that it's not of grace or anything like that. It's simply to say that we're personally engaged in the work that the Spirit is doing in us. It's something that the Spirit performs through our sweat, through our sighs and tears, so to speak. What does that process of transformation look like in action? Well, I believe the Apostle Paul gives a fairly accurate picture of it in Ephesians 4, 20-24. After speaking of the way the unbeliever lives, giving themselves up to sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity, Paul says this. He says, But this is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If you're paying attention there, there are actually two parts to this transformation process. First, there's this old self, which Paul says is characterized by corrupt and deceitful desires, which must be put off. And then there's the new self, which is created after the likeness of God, that must be put on. And then sandwiched in the middle of these two steps, Paul explains the means by which this putting off and putting on occurs, and that's through the renewal of the mind. Again, there's this old way of thinking that's characterized by deceitful desires, Paul says, wrong desires, and those desires must be systematically dismantled and then disposed of. 
How? It's through the renewal of the mind. Again, they are deceitful desires. They're desires built upon a foundation of lies. And so the way you tear that building down is by detonating the foundation with biblical truth. I tend to think that a lot of times many Christians tend to make the mistake of performing only one of those two steps. They try to put on the new man, meaning they go to church and they learn biblical truth, but they, the way they go about it is flawed because they never use that truth to tear down the old man. It's the difference between slapping wallpaper on a bunch of old, moldy drywall and actually stripping the wall down to the studs and starting over. Most Christians only try to add truth on top of their old way of thinking instead of tearing it down completely. And that's a problem because Paul tells us that's how this growth in Christ-likeness occurs, by putting off the old man in addition to putting on the new. Well, this is more or less the goal of our current series. Uh, The book, once again, is Philippians. And I've entitled this series The Evangelistic Psyche because I think this is what we get a glimpse of in this book. We're getting a glimpse of the motivations and the values of the evangelist. As Paul himself writes to the Philippians to thank them for their support of his mission work. And if you can think of the, the beams and girders that form the skeleton of a skyscraper or of the framework that gives structure to a house, what I'm trying to do is use this epistle to knock down the old mental framework that gave structure to the way of life that you lived before you were a Christian in order to erect a new way of thinking in its place. In short, I'm after those deceitful desires. I want you to examine them in light of the way that we see Paul thinking here in Philippians. I mentioned last week, Paul is going to exhort us several times throughout this epistle to live and even think like him. And so that's what we're going to do here. We're going to try to transform our thinking to fit the pattern of thought that we see in the Apostle Paul as he sits under house arrest in Rome, all for the sake of the gospel. In order to do this, of course, we have to have some way of knowing how Paul thinks. And I mentioned last week that we already have one tremendous tool at our disposal for discovering that in the form of this letter that Paul's written to the Philippians. If you can recall, I said that a person's personal correspondence often serves as a kind of window into their soul that reveals how a person thinks, the things they care about, their hopes, their desires, in a way few other things can. In fact, this is largely why we consider letters to be private, especially private. Well, the book of Philippians is more properly referred to as Paul's epistle or letter to the Philippians. This is a bit of personal correspondence between Paul and this church, his friends, meaning we're getting to read Paul's mail as we study this book together. So if we want to know how Paul thinks, this is a great place to begin. But I'll tell you, if you want to know how someone really thinks, there may be an even better place to look to than their letters. And you know where that is? It's their prayers. I mean, you want to you talk about private. What a person says to God, presumably when no one else is looking, you don't get much more private than that. And not only that, but if you want to understand the way a person thinks, what their deepest concerns are, their deepest desires, their prayers are probably going to reveal that better than anything else. 
I mean, you set someone before an all-powerful being, a person who literally has the ability to grant them anything they wish, a being who also knows everything about them, meaning a being that they know they can't manipulate or fool. You set them before that being, and on top of of it all, you put them in a setting where that being will not interrupt them and talk back. And then you watch for the sort of things that they talk about and pray for and ask for from that being in that setting and the types of things that they give thanks for. And you're getting a glimpse into the things that they truly desire. You're getting a sense of what their priorities are. You're getting a sense of what they think is important. It's as Robert Murray McShane so famously said, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. That is a true statement, Christian. If you want to discern the true quality of your spiritual life, you need to look no further than the types of prayers that you offer up before God when no one is looking. That's who you really are. And it's with this in mind that we have the privilege over the next couple of weeks to explore the types of things that Paul prayed for. Again, do you want to learn how Paul thinks? Well, this is where we're going to find it. It's in the types of prayers that he offers up to God. The passage, once again, is Philippians 1, 3-11. In this passage, Paul expresses both the things that he thanks God for and the, and the things that he asks for in relation to the Philippians when he prays. We're going to begin uh, by focusing on the types of things that Paul is thankful for This week, that occurs in verses 3 to 8. So let's go ahead and read the entire passage. But as we read, pay particular attention to verses 3 to 8 and ask yourself, what is Paul thankful for here? Philippians 1, 3 through 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Have you guys ever received a really good gift? I have once. I'm sure that there's been many times when I've received an especially good gift. But there's one occasion that stands out above all the others. In fact, it's the only occasion I can remember when a gift actually brought me to tears. It was back at Christmas 2005 at my ex-girlfriend's house. We had broken off pursuing any romantic interest at the time, or rather she had broken it off with me. I wasn't entirely convinced just yet personally. Still, we were friends and we were going to spend an evening together for whatever reason I can't entirely recall. I came to pick her up, and since the breakup was still fresh, we had already gone to the trouble of getting each other Christmas gifts. 
she was leaving to go back home to Michigan soon, and so we decided to exchange a few days early before I came to pick her up. I don't remember what I got her, but I remember what she got me and the moment that I got it very well. I was standing in her kitchen. The house was empty, and since she was getting ready to leave, most of the lights were out. There was only a single light on above the kitchen table. If I remember correctly, it was in one of those gift bags, you know, with the tissue paper stuffed in on top, which is very unlike her. In fact, to this day, she still scolds me for being lazy whenever I try to put a gift in one of those gift bags. Anyways, I remember digging through the tissue paper and finding a picture frame. That's odd, I thought. I wonder what that could be a picture of. I pulled the picture frame out, took a quick look at what was inside, and before I knew what had come over me, tears were streaming down my face. I was so thankful. You see, I had been baptized about a month earlier, and it was a picture of my baptism. A series of pictures, actually, of me praying before I was baptized, of my mentor Smedley dunking me down into the water, of me coming out, It was one of the most meaningful and significant moments of my life. And I had done nothing to record it. Never even crossed my mind, but she was there, and she brought a camera, and she very intentionally recorded every single moment. Again, I absolutely lost it. I had never received a more thoughtful and meaningful gift. In fact, I doubt I ever will. And I have to say, if if her intent was to get rid of me, that was a pretty terrible way to do it. Ain't that right, Emily? (laughs) Till death do us part. She's stuck with me now. And that picture frame, it still hangs in my office. Now that gift might not have any intrinsic value, right? A Walmart picture frame with a few photos stuffed inside. I, I couldn't get more than maybe a dollar for that at a garage sale. Other people wouldn't value that very much. And yet when I received it, I was so thankful it brought me to tears. And the reason is because those photos represented something that was very important to me. In other words, the value in that gift came not from the raw materials that were used to create it, but rather it was an expression of my priorities. My baptism was important to me. It was meaningful to me. And so while others wouldn't even care if I tried to give that picture frame to them, to me it's priceless. That's what was being reflected in my gratitude for the gift. The tears were an expression of what I considered to be important. I mean, you could could hand me the keys to a brand new Lamborghini and I wouldn't cry like I cried over that $5 picture frame. Because the Lamborghini doesn't mean as much to me as my baptism does. Do you guys see how that works? The things that we're thankful for reflect the things that we really value. I want you to think for a moment about the things that you thank God for in prayer. And I don't mean the things that you make yourself thank Him for. I know we all probably do that, right? We know we should be thankful for certain things, and so when we come to pray, maybe during our morning quiet time, we discipline ourselves to thank God for those things. Now, that's not necessarily bad in and of itself, but that's not what I'm asking here. What I'm asking about here is, what are the things that make you erupt in thanksgiving to God, spontaneously even? 
Like maybe you narrowly avoided a car accident and then you pulled your car over to, to the side of the road and while you were still shaking, you placed your head on the steering wheel and you just muttered to yourself over and over again, thank you, God, thank you, God. I mean, something like that. Maybe it's not as dramatic or as scary as that. Maybe it's something like getting a raise at work. You know, you get your raise, you walk back to your desk or your workstation, and with a smile on your face, you say to yourself, Thank you, Lord. Maybe it's something as simple as a morning sunrise. You see the beauty of it, and in that moment, you utter a little prayer, praising God for the beauty of what He's made. There are all kinds of things that we can be really and genuinely thankful for. What are they? What are the things that cause you to erupt in gratitude? And then what do they reflect about your priorities? What do they reflect about the things that you think are important? And are they the kinds of things that you ought to be thankful for? Again, are they a reflection of these deceitful desires which belong to your former manner of life, your old self, which you're supposed to put off in Christ? Or are they a reflection of this new self, which is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness? Here in Philippians 1, 3-8, Paul expresses to the Philippians the types of things that cause him to rejoice. And he not only tells them what those things are, but why even they make him so grateful. I think that makes this an especially important passage if you're going to learn how to put on this new self. Because in it, Paul not only demonstrates for us the kind of thinking, the sort of priorities that we're supposed to have in Christ Jesus, but he also models for us where these priorities come from, what foundational truths create and shape these priorities. So let's go ahead and look at this together. Let's look first at what Paul is thankful for, and then second at why. And just as a heads up, I want to spend most of our time this morning on the second point, the why of Paul's gratitude, because this is, I think, the most significant element in his gratitude. In other words, I don't think that the things that Paul mentions here are the only things that Paul is thankful for. I think he's probably thankful for a lot of other things. But if you can understand why he's thankful for these things in particular, then you can probably anticipate the other types of things that he would be thankful for in his life as well. So again, this is a really significant point, the why of Paul's thankfulness. Still, the what is useful because it highlights for us whether or not our priorities align with Paul's. It serves as a kind of litmus test into the spiritual quality of our thinking. So let's look first at what Paul is thankful for, and then second at why he's thankful for it. So the what of Paul's thankfulness. I think there are three striking observations that we can make about the character of Paul's gratitude in this passage. The first and most significant observation is that Paul's gratitude is oriented around people. It's oriented around people. This comes out most clearly in verse 3, but it carries all the way through the passage. Paul says this, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. 
For you are all partakers of, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You guys hear that? All the way through this passage, he's talking about them, the Philippians. That's interesting because I mentioned, as I mentioned last week, Paul is writing this letter in response to a financial gift that he's received from the Philippians. Paul is sitting under house arrest in Rome. The Philippians have caught wind of this, and their response was to send him some money to help take care of his needs while he's under house arrest. Paul receives this gift, and he writes this letter in response. And the very first thing he says to the Philippians is not, I'm so grateful for the money you sent me. In fact, he hardly even mentions the money until the very end of this letter. Instead, he starts off his letter by saying, First off, I want to let you guys know how grateful I am for you. Isn't that interesting? Think about this. Paul was a tent maker. This is how he tended to support himself when he was on his missionary journeys. You know, uh, sometimes uh, some people will get so much money in life, they'll earn so much, that they'll basically retire into ministry, give all their attention there, because they don't have to earn a paycheck anymore. That's not Paul. He wasn't independently wealthy or anything like that. He made his way in the world the same way that you and I do. He went out and he earned it. And yet here he is, sitting under house arrest in Rome, unable to do anything to earn his living. And so you can only imagine the relief that this contribution would have brought to him when he first received it from the Philippians. And yet when Paul gets around to expressing the things he's thankful for, he hardly even mentions that. Instead, he tells the Philippians, I just have to say, I can't tell you enough how thankful I am for you. And just so there's no misunderstanding here, the way Paul presents this, this is not another way of Paul saying that he's actually thankful for the financial support. You know, he's not saying, I'm really thankful for you, because without you I wouldn't have the money I need to survive. As if his gratitude for them is still grounded in the things that they're doing for Paul. No, as I'll explain in just a moment, the reason why Paul is thankful is because of what the money represents about the Philippians themselves. There's a sense in which it points back to their spiritual condition. And it's the reality of that condition that Paul is thankful for more than anything else. Meaning, Paul is really and truly thankful for them. For the Philippians themselves, they are what matter to him, what brings him joy. His priorities are structured in such a way that he values them. And in fact, he's not just thankful for the Philippians generally, but for each and every one of them specifically. That's the second observation to make about Paul's gratitude. It's not just oriented around people, but it's actually comprehensive in its scope. He's thankful for all of them. Look here one more time. Four different times, Paul goes out of his way to not merely say that he's thankful for them generally, but for all of them specifically. Verse 4, for instance, he speaks of being thankful in every prayer of his, uh, quote, for you all. As we jump down to verse 7, Paul explains that it's right for him to feel this way about, quote, you all. He explains, for you all 
are partakers with me of grace. In verse 8, he reiterates, he says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And that's not accidental, by the way. Later on in this epistle, we're going to learn that Paul has become aware of some divisions taking place in the church, perhaps even among the leadership in particular. And in light of this division, Paul is going to urge them to adopt the humility of mind that will enable them to be unified in their stand for the gospel. So for Paul to repeat on four different occasions that he's thankful for all of the Philippians, that's quite intentional. He means to emphasize that his gratitude is comprehensive. It includes every single one of them. Not just part. Think about that for a minute. When was the last time that you found yourself genuinely thanking God for another brother or sister in Christ? When was the last time that you found yourself actually rejoicing over some sign of grace in someone's life, some aspect of their growth that pointed to the fact that they are indeed in Christ and a sincere brother or sister? Again, not for the things that they've given you, but simply for who they are. Let's take it a step further. When was the last time you were grateful, not only for the ones who are a blessing to you, but even for the ones who aren't? You know, the sinning, but genuine brother or sister. When was the last time you were grateful for them? I think it's very easy for us to be grateful for those who are mature and who with their maturity do good and serve those around them, edify the church, but that's not how every Christian acts. At least not all of the time. Some, though true Christians, still struggle with jealousy and selfish ambition. They can even create problems in the church at times as they struggle with their selfish desires. Do you ever find yourself still grateful for them? Because that's what we see in Paul. Even as he's hearing reports that there are some in the church that are struggling with selfish desires, he still writes to say that he's thankful for all of them. I would think that for most of us, this is a strange thing, not only to find joy in other people, regardless of what they give us, but such comprehensive joy, to be grateful even for those who are perhaps less than admirable. And yet I'll tell you something stranger still than that. What's stranger still is that Paul is not just thankful for all of them, but that he's sincerely and even abundantly thankful for all of them. Like, he's actually quite exuberant about it. That's the third observation to make about his gratitude. He's not just thankful for the Philippians and for all of them, but he's sincerely and even abundantly grateful for them all. This comes out through several different elements in this passage. For example, in verse 7, Paul speaks of holding the Philippians, quote, in my heart. Just so you know, that's more than simply saying that Paul has an emotional attachment to the Philippians, though it certainly includes that. In biblical usage, the heart refers not just to the seat of the emotions, but even to the place of one's thinking and their will. Uh, As one commentator notes, for instance, he calls it, quote, the deepest center of human consciousness in Hebrew usage. So for Paul to say that he has the Philippians in his heart is to say that he's thinking of them often and even yearning for them. You guys know how you'll sometimes daydream about a loved one while they're away because you miss them so much and you long to see them again. That seems to be the attitude that Paul is painting here. The Philippians are in his heart in this sense. He's carrying them with him, even when he's absent. 
Indeed, it's precisely this sort of attitude that Paul describes in verse 8 when he says, uh, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. (laughs) That word for affection is a rather fun word. It's the term splachnon. And if you can think of the sound that a bucket full of guts would make if you poured it out on the kitchen floor, that's what this word represents. Splachna. It means literally bowels or entrails, which were the organs that were typically associated with with this emotion in the ancient world. You know how we'll use the term lovesick to describe that feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when you're really smitten by someone else? That's the emotion that splachnon captures. Again, I say this as an English major. This is a really great word. It's sometimes used to refer to the affection that one person feels for another. And that's what the way that Paul is using it here. He's saying literally, I love this, I yearn for you all with the guts of Christ Jesus. <laughs> I know I'm not making that up. In fact, this is actually how the King James translates the passage. He says, for God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. A little gross maybe, right? But effective nonetheless. I think we can certainly sense the intensity of the emotion in that statement, can we not? That emotion spills out in verses 3 to 4 as well. Pay attention to the style here and how it gives us a window into the emotions that Paul's feeling when he writes this. In particular, look, in particular, look at how many times Paul uses some variation of this word all in verses 3 to 4. He says, I thank my God... In all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. You guys see that? In all his remembrance, always, in every prayer, God is thanking, or Paul is thanking God for them. It's the equivalent of a child saying, I love you very, 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 very much. Each repetition of the concept intensifies the emotion, and it gives us this picture of Paul almost struggling to find the words to express just how much he thinks of the Philippians and how much he thanks God for them. In total, the picture that Paul presents in these verses is that he loves these these believers so much that he can't stop thinking about them. They keep coming to his mind. And then, of course, as they're coming to his mind, he's offering these spontaneous prayers of thanks for them, all of them. Again, you know, these spontaneous prayers that I was asking you about just a few moments ago, that's the way that Paul feels about the Philippians. This isn't Paul sitting down to his devotions in the morning and then seeing the Philippians on his prayer list and muttering out in a very droll sort of way, you know, dear God, thank you, for the Philippians. Oh, this is more like Paul. He try, he's trying to do his work, only he can't because he keeps daydreaming about how wonderful the Philippians are and how he can't wait to be released from house arrest so he can go and see them again. You understand what I'm saying here? This is genuine excitement that Paul has over them. This isn't fake. This isn't duty. He's actually thankful for them. And again, all of them. I mean, isn't that a picture? Here's Paul sitting under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial before the most powerful ruler on the planet. And so far from being anxious about that, 
He's actually sitting there unable to wipe this stupid grin off his face, which the Philippians have put there through this gift. That's the sort of attitude that Paul is trying to communicate, not just here, but really throughout this entire letter. Listen, where does that kind of excitement, that kind of gratitude, listen, that kind of joy over other believers come from? I think we could provide some general answers to that question. For instance, in Sunday school, we had a lesson about the indwelling power of love, and we discussed how there's a sense in which love abides with the Christian by virtue of the indwelling presence of the Spirit. Of course, this morning we discussed how this love for others ultimately manifests itself with joy. So maybe we could chalk it up to that. Maybe we could say that Paul possesses this kind of gratitude simply because he's indwelt by the Spirit. And this Spirit produces a love for us that enables us to find this sincere joy in others, even when they're less than perfect. The only problem, of course, is that you and I possess the same Spirit, the same Spirit that resides in Paul, and yet I would venture that most of us probably don't possess the kind of sincere and exuberant joy over others that we see here. So why is that? You see, Paul's already told us through passages like the one I read uh, from in Ephesians 4 earlier this morning, he's told us that growth in this kind of character occurs progressively. It occurs through the renewal of the mind. So yes, it is the Spirit that performs this work in us, and yet at the same time, it's not something that occurs without our active participation. It's like what Paul says in Romans 12 too. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's a command that happens to us. It's what theologians call the divine passive, where we're commanded to have God do something to us. How do we do that? What do we do that God uses to transform us? Paul continues, Romans 12 too. Again, he says, be transformed, he says, by the renewal of the mind. So the idea is that God does the work, but He does it as we learn. It doesn't just poof, happen without any sort of explanation. No, we unmask the deceitful desires, these these former desires. We unmask the deceit in that with truth. And the result is that the Spirit uses this to grow us in love, and with this love, joy. You guys understand what I'm getting at here? The reason why Paul seems to have this joy... And so many of us don't, even though we have access to the same spiritual resources, is because there are certain ways of thinking that he's adopted as a way of life by faith, which produce this kind of joy. It's a joy that's rooted in a particular truth that he believes, which causes this joy. And what is that truth? Well, Quite simply, brothers and sisters, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. That's our next point. We've just looked at what Paul is thankful for. His gratitude is oriented around people. He's delighting in the Philippians, and he's delighted with this sincerely exuberant joy. Now, why is he grateful for these things? That's really the more important question. As I've said, I don't think these are the only things that Paul's grateful for. Uh, We could go to other passages and see that Paul's grateful for many things. But the common denominator behind them all, the one reality that lies at the very root of all these expressions of joy, is his belief in the gospel and how that frames his perspective on reality. 
Look here at verse 5. In verses 3 to 4, Paul begins by expressing this bubbling up of joy that comes to his mind whenever he thinks about the Philippians. In verse 5, he explains why they bring him such joy, why he's so thankful. He says, I thank God always in my remembrance of you. Why? Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership, it's the word koinonia. I imagine that many of you have heard that word before. Koinonia, it means something like fellowship. Acts 2.42, Luke says that the early church devoted themselves to the teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. The word for fellowship there is koinonia. Here Paul is grateful for their fellowship in the gospel. The New American Standard Translation calls it their participation in the gospel. And contextually, it would seem that on one hand, Paul's referring to their support of his ministry, like he's referring to the money that they've sent him, even while he's sitting there in prison. This seems to be the sense of what he means when he refers to a koinonia that's occurred, quote, from the first day until now. I mentioned this last week. Paul will note in Philippians 4.15 that when he came into Macedonia, quote, no church entered into a partnership, a koinonia, with me in giving and receiving except only you. The Philippians were incredibly faithful ministry supporters from the very beginning of their faith. So that's part of what, what Paul's referring to when he uses this term koinonia. He's referring to their financial support. Only note this. Paul doesn't call this ministry support. He doesn't say, I'm thankful for your ministry support. He talks about a koinonia, a partnership in the gospel. That's what he's thankful for. I think that the New American Translation of this verse captures the sense of it well. They're participants in the gospel with Paul. Again, they're not mere bystanders. They're partners with Paul. That's what he's grateful for. And that sort of nuance is important because it captures the sense in which Paul is grateful. Again, it's like I said a minute ago. It's not the money that Paul's thankful for, but what it represents. It's just like my picture frame. It's not the picture frame that matters, but what it points to. It's the same way with Paul. He isn't rejoicing over the gift in and of itself, but what it points to, which is the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. Now, why does that matter? Why is that a cause for rejoicing if it's not because of the relief it brings to Paul in his chains? Verse 6 and on, Paul explains. He says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You know what that's a reference to, don't you? That's a, that's a reference to the Philippians' salvation. Paul is confident in the fact that when Jesus comes, these gospel partners are going to be standing there with Paul in glory. If I could put it in terms that we've discussed only recently, Paul is confident in the fact that the gospel that he's sown in the Philippians has fallen on good soil. They've not only heard the gospel, they've received it, and the outcome of this faith is going to be their salvation. How does he know this? Paul explains, verse 7. He he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. In what way? Well, in the way that Paul just described, it's right for him to have this gratitude over their salvation. Why? He says, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
The word for partakers there is sukoinonas. And do you hear the root word there? It's koinonia once again. Only this time there's this prefix that means something like with or together added on the beginning. Partakers is a great way of translating it. Just like we all share the same bread, right, around the Lord's table, Paul is saying that in the same way, the Philippians are fellow partakers of grace along with him. And again, how is this fellowship, this participation expressed? Paul explains, he says, both in my imprisonment, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And there seems to be two senses to that statement. First, the Philippians are participating with Paul by supporting him in his imprisonment. They're sharing that burden with him, so to speak, by sending this gift along to support him while he's under house arrest. They're partaking of that imprisonment with him. But, and this is, not only, this is not to be missed, Paul is also going to say later on in verse 29, that it has been granted to the Philippians not only to believe in Christ. Note that, by the way, he talks about being partakers of grace. He's going to say that it has been granted to them not only to believe in Christ, but also that they should suffer for His sake. You see, it would appear that the Philippians are beginning to encounter the same kind of suffering that they first witnessed in Paul when he came to Philippi and was thrown into prison. The same kind of suffering that Paul's currently experiencing in Rome. They're experiencing it now as well. And so far, at least, they're persevering through it. And when Paul sees that, when he receives this gift and hears news of their steadfastness, he goes, yes, Yes, this means that they're truly partakers with me of grace. A sort of funny way of saying this, or to refer to their suffering as a participation in grace. And there are elements to this concept that we'll explore as we journey deeper into Philippians. But for right now, what you need to know at the very least is that their willing participation with Paul in his imprisonment and their perseverance in their own is proof of the fact that their faith is real. It's evidence of their salvation. If I could put it this way, it's evidence of the fact that they're not thorny soil. They're not being overcome by the cares of the world. Their generosity to Paul is proof of that. Neither are they rocky soil. The heat of persecution is beating down on them, and they're not wilting. They're standing firm, which means they have a firm root. So again, the idea is that they're good soil. They are indeed partakers of grace with Paul. When Christ comes, they will be ready. Most certainly God will bring to completion what He started in the Philippians because every indication in their life is pointing to the fact that they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They are indeed saved. That is what causes Paul to rejoice over this gift. And what it demonstrates for us is that the source of this inexplicable, inexplicable joy for Paul comes from his hope in the gospel and the way it frames his thinking about life. Think one more time about where Paul is looking when he expresses this gratitude. Think one more time about where he's placing his hope. Again, what does this gift and, and the report that Epaphroditus brought along with it point to that gives Paul such reason for rejoicing? Verse 6, Paul explains, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
Do you see there? It isn't even the Philippians' present condition. It isn't even their present condition that Paul's delighting in, but what their present condition points to about what will happen to them in the future, their future hope. The gift is the picture frame, and the Philippians' current spiritual state are the photos that point to this other meaningful event that's the ultimate source of joy and hope. This is how Paul is thinking. His joy, his gratitude is derived in his ultimate hope in the coming return of Jesus Christ. Listen, you want to know why Paul's imprisonment and his coming hearing before Caesar, why these things do not shake him? It's because Paul already knows that he's going to die. It's just a matter of when. And regardless of when that happens, he knows what's awaiting him. It's the same outcome either way. You want to know why the financial gift sent by the Philippians, though helpful, is not his ultimate source of joy? Same reason. Paul doesn't really care about money. Later on, he's going to talk about the the secret of having much and having little. Well, there it is. Like James told us just a few months ago, Paul understands that gold and silver, the, the gold and silver of this world are already corroding. And this means that Paul isn't going to be overly shaken by his poverty, but neither is he going to be over-encouraged by his wealth. Because that's not where he puts his hope in the comforts of this life. No, the only thing that matters to Paul is whether or not he gets to participate in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, Paul is going to say that he counts everything else as loss if it only means that he gets to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. Paul is living with this eternal mindset that's framed by the message of the gospel. And you want to know one of the things that begins to matter when you start to look at life this way. Do you want to know what you begin to value? You see it here in verses 3 to 8. It's people. You begin to value people. You see, what hangs in the balance in the present is not whether we will live or die, because we will all die. It's not our present conditions, because all our wealth and status will be zeroed out when we die. And the only thing that matters, the only thing that really and truly matters is people. Because people possess a soul that will survive death and then experience the eternal joys of heaven or the eternal suffering of hell. You understand that's what hangs in the balance here in the present. You can have good health or bad health for a period of time, but no matter what, the end is the same. You die. You can have much or little, but no matter what, the end is the same. You essentially die bankrupt. The one variable, so to speak, whose outcome will be affected by what occurs here in the present is the eternal destiny of of immortal souls. And so when Paul hears that the churches he's planted are marked by division, or that they're beginning to fall sway to false teaching, he's he's grief-stricken. That's what makes him sad, because there's a sense of real loss there. Oh, when he hears that they're standing firm and that they're even growing in their faith like this Philippian church, that's when he can't stop rejoicing because that's a sign of true and lasting gain. You know, I think it's rather ironic. According to a 2011 report put out by the World Health Organization, 
Richer countries tend to have higher depression rates than poorer countries. Did you know that? The United States, for example, has an estimated depression rate of around 19%. That's one in every five Americans. And it's good enough for second highest overall in the world. And this in spite of the fact that we are easily one of the richest countries in the entire planet. By comparison, depression rates in Mexico and China were 8 and 6.5% respectively. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like the more you have, the less satisfied you are. Now, why would that be? I don't think that there's probably any one single factor in that equation. After all, there are some poor countries with high depression rates, and there's some rich countries with low depression rates. So money definitely isn't the only factor, and yet there seems to be some type of correlation between wealth and sadness, actually. And while I don't think we can pin down the reason... To any one issue, I would have to think at least one reason, if not the major reason, comes from the fact that we not only live in a very rich society, but even more importantly, we live in a very consumeristic one. We are constantly blitzed with the idea through advertising or other forms of media, even through social media, through the Facebook and Instagram updates of our families and friends, that our lives are incomplete that we're missing something. That we're missing something that only a new house or a great career or a fun vacation or a better spouse can supply. And the result is that we are not content. We are not thankful. Instead, we're an incredibly depressed people. We live with this constant burden that our lives should be better than what they are. And the result is that even though we've been blessed abundantly, we're still incredibly sad. Once again, I've entitled this series The Evangelistic Psyche. And just so you know, I'm not using that term psyche in the sense of mental health or happiness. This isn't a series designed simply to make you feel better about yourself. And yet I would have you note here one of the outcomes of this gospel-oriented evangelistic mindset is that it produces incredible and abiding joy. It produces gratitude, thanksgiving, And it does this because the very thing that drives the missionary to give away their life for Christ, the very thing that motivates them to go and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the world, is this very certain and unchanging hope. So do you lack joy, Christian? You struggle to find things that you're genuinely thankful for. If so, could it be that your way of thinking is not sufficiently framed by the realities of the gospel? Joy is indeed a fruit of the Spirit. And as we discussed in Sunday school earlier today, it's a characteristic that flows out of love. But but this love, this joy, it doesn't happen to us passively. No, we must put off the former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and through the renewal of the mind, put on this new set of desires, put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So have you done that? Are you doing that? Are you framing your life by the realities of the gospel? Because if you are, it's going to show up in your life in the kinds of things you're thankful for. And what a wonderful blessing that is, right? To have this ability to be thankful for things like the spiritual growth of those around us. 
Tell you what, why don't we go ahead and close this morning by expressing our gratitude to God for this gift of contentedness, this gift of thankfulness that He supplies us in Christ. Let's pray.